0: Again, to uh, be able to open the book of Exodus, uh, if you haven't been with us or you've missed uh, a few weeks, that's where we are again today. We're going through Exodus. We find ourselves today in Exodus chapter 22. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 22, verses 16, all the way through 2319. Um, today, we come to a, another section of civil case laws. And uh, again, many of them seem obscure and, and likely unhelpful, but it has been, if it has been the same way for you it has been, as it has been for me um, over these last few weeks, that just isn't the case. Each week we get more specific in these civil laws. We see how these truths and more are more and more applicable to us. We see how the Lord is being specific and intentional because He is holy And he wants us to be holy. He is just and he wants us to be just. He is good and he wants us to be good. He wants us to be a people who are who are notated, who are known for living like Jesus. And living like Jesus doesn't just mean like the hippie love that a lot of people like to describe. For you, you know, uh, uh, describe it as living like Jesus means so much more. And he lays out, he lays out exactly what these, this, this love, this justice, this righteousness, this holiness, this being set apart is in his law, but then even in his civil laws, the book of covenant, which we've been studying the last few weeks. He is just, the Lord is, and therefore he expects us as a body that is to be marked by being like him to also be just. Again, today is no exception. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to briefly discuss these case laws or and civil laws and, and then touch on how they lead followers of the Lord to live. Now what I want to do with you today is I want us to read the Scripture. Now when I start preparing for a weekly sermon and... The Scripture is more than like 10 or so verses. It starts to concern me a little bit for our attention span. But we still read the the Scripture because it is not the words of the pastor that are divinely inspired and profitable. It is not the words of the pastor that are irrefutable. It is not the words of the pastor that are immutable, that are unchanging, that are above reproach. It is the Word of God that is above reproach. It is the word of God that is unchanging and irrefutable and immutable and all of those wonderful uh, tabul words. The love of God, or the word of God, is is what we focus on. And so today we will read the word of God and we will see what God has to say to His people, not what Bryce has to say to His people. Look at Exodus chapter twenty-two, starting in verse sixteen. Some of this, I'm telling you, it's going to seem obscure. and It's going to seem weird. But I think it's going to be helpful for us still. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people... With you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presence. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs." chapter 23 you shall not spread a false report you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be mali- to be a malicious witness you shall not fall in with the many to do evil nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice nor shall <clears throat> excuse me nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray you shall bring it back to him if you see the donkey or one who, uh, of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall not bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right." You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know, the heart, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of, of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. <clears throat> six days you shall do work. But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. And in and for in it you come, you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, and what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of at the end of the year, when you gather it when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Pray with me today. God, you are so good, and in your goodness you have designed rules and laws and regulations so that we may know your heart and we may follow you. Lord, in your goodness also you have made a way that whereas we were expected to keep the law perfectly and we could not, you made a way through your Son who has kept the law perfectly for us. And through his grace, we are being brought more into the image of your Son every day. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we know what it's like just a taste right now of what it's like to be like you. Lord, help us to trust in the work of Jesus alone for our salvation, in the power of the Holy Spirit for our sanctification, and let us all together grow more into the image of your Son. We pray and ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, if, you've, if this is your first time being here today, I am not going to give you an extensive explanation for every single thing in here. We have... Uh, missional community gatherings. We meet during the week, and if you have a question about one of the more, um, you know, difficult things in this, you can just ask your missional community leader, and he'll tell you the answer. It's like when your teacher or something goes, tells you to go home and ask your mom, kid. So, um, so anyway, um, this is this is sort of this is sort of what there is. There, there's not enough time to explain every detail, every aspect. And as a matter of fact, I don't think. I think there are overarching principles that are more important than trying to do that here in this time today. Uh, I would hope, though, that our study over the last few weeks, our study over the last year or so in Exodus has been great for you. I know for me it has for many reasons. But one of the main reasons is, is that I'm not scared of the law or scared of explaining the law anymore. I mean, not that I was every day or not. I had been working through this anyway. But one of the main reasons that I was sort of scared of the law or scared of case law is trying to explain it to other people. I've been scared for many years of the law, sort of, you know, in a way. Not because I feared God or what he might do. Not because I feared that God would send me to hell if I couldn't keep his law Perfectly, not because I thought it was unreasonable. I've trusted in Jesus for those things for a long time now. But I was scared of the law because for the longest time, I didn't know how to explain the law to people. I was scared because the Ten Commandments and that which followed seemed like it was presenting a different God than the God of the New Testament. And honestly, if we're talking about two different attitudes... Of the same God, it might leave us even wondering which one of those gods we will get at any specific moment. It's likely why some pastors and many Christians have tried to, quote unquote, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. It isn't a fear for themselves, but a fear of trying to have to explain to the current culture the God of the Old Testament. And how he relates to the God of the New now, over the years, and even through this study, I, I've come to see that this fear is irrational. And it's founded in, on a very le- at the very least, a weak view of God. And at the very most, a misunderstanding of God altogether. So what has changed for me? What have we found in our study of the Old Testament Scripture of Exodus, of the laws of God, We have found in our study and through study that the laws of God show that He is not some irrational, unloving, condemning, lightning striking type God, but that He is a God who is just, meaning that He must do what's right. He is a God who is holy. He is a God who is set apart. But if we don't just take a cursory view of the Old Testament, we also see him as a God who is loving and a God who is compassionate, a God who condescended to Israel to make for them a set of standards that if they followed them would guarantee success and closeness with God indefinitely. A God who protects the lowly and forgotten in society by, as we've seen over the last few weeks, establishing rules to protect the slave. Establishing rules to protect women and babies in the womb. A God who made rules to protect lives lives of all kinds and to give restitution, but not restitution in a way that you couldn't recover from, but restitution in a way that was just for both the person who perpetrated the act and the person that the act was perpetrated against. A God who made rules to protect all life, the criminal and the victim, because he sees both as an image bearer. A God who has more of a sense of justice in his right pinky than all justices and judges who have ever lived on this earth. What I've seen most importantly is that Instead of muddying up or messing up justice and goodness, these commands of God have cleaned our views and clarified for all to see what actual justice, what actual goodness, what actual kindness looks like. And to this kind of justice that Exodus displays, we say along with Amos, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an ending stream. As we follow this justice and we we hold to the words of the psalmist when he says, turn from evil and do good and then you will dwell in the land forever for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake the faithful ones. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And, in, and until He returns and full justice is known, we listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah and we are encouraged when he says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore He will rise up and show compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. This series for me, friends, has been a sweet-smelling Aroma because of the justice and righteousness of God and how they have been shown. To me, they have been shown in a way that I don't feel the need to explain away the character of God, but to embrace it. I would assert to you that we don't need to unhitch our lives from the Old Testament, but we need to double down. We need to double down. We need to be more discerning and more thoughtful. We need to research more and examine more just what God has to say through His entire Word. Again, today we learn of the justice and righteousness of God. Today we see just how God clarifies for us that He is good, He is kind, He is loving, He is compassionate. But in all of that, he must do what is right. Today, I want to point out to you six areas where God again proves that he is most just and most right. And then I want us to take a look at those six and apply those to our lives as we follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to go through these six super quickly, and then these six will be described throughout the sermon. So you don't have to feel the need to write all these first six down. But here are six ways that I've seen the justice of God in our text today and throughout even our other uh, look into the case laws. The first is this. And th- don't, don't bring up the points on the screen yet. This is, not, this is not on the screen. He is an advocate for the lowly and forgotten. He is an advocate for the lowly and forgotten. He is singular in nature and should be worshipped that way. He has given graciously to mankind not only common grace but special grace. He gave us of his first fruits, his son Jesus. He deals justly and compassionately with us. He designed natural rhythms of rest for his people so that we may rest in him. Friends, this is the heart of the lawgiver. This is the heart of a just God. And since this law reflects the heart of a lawgiver, as we continue in our study of the law, may we study not so that we can know what to do, but may we study the law so that we can better know the heart of God. And as we follow and love and cherish the heart of God through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives us the power and the ability to keep His commands." It is one of the greatest proofs that God lives in you if you keep the commands of God. Because no one, as we've seen in Scripture, can do it on their own. It is necessary that God must intervene. And if God intervenes, He will work in your life to bring you through the process of sanctification. You will be more like Him. Friends, can we read the law? Can we read what God has designed for us? To follow, not just so that we can follow it, but so that we can know God more. And as we know God more, we will follow Him. I want to parallel those six characteristics of God that I just gave you. And I want us to know, I want us to look at these so that we can know the heart of God better and how we can live our lives in the way that God prescribes. The first is this. A follower of Jesus, now that's us, this is for, I know that this text was written for the law, but this sermon is written for you, okay? This text is written for Old Covenant, this sermon is written for you, partakers of the New Covenant. A follower of Jesus should be an advocate for the lowly and the forgotten. It's simple enough. The lawgiver was an advocate for the lowly and the forgotten, so his followers must be an advocate. They must be advocates for the lowly and the forgotten. There are several people in, uh, mentioned here in this group. The virgin, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, our poor neighbor. These are the people that God mentions in this set of case laws. But we know that these are not, it's not an exhaustive list of the lowly and the forgotten that God has not forgotten. It's just the one that we have today. So these are the ones we'll go through today. The first one is the virgin. Now, women in ancient society were frail. And they had little rights. And no matter if it's right, if, it's, if it seems wrong to our society, if it's right, we don't quite understand it. But the virgin was the most valuable of all women because of her dignity. I mean, of her virginity, excuse me, and her dignity, I guess. But she was also the most scorned. For not being a virgin. Often losing virginity for a woman resulted in death or scorn, and it became incredibly difficult for her to marry. Now, we have here a case where it says a man seduces a woman. This is not a case of rape, but this is a case of consensual affection. They're either in love with each other or were overcome with passion. But either way, this law was set in place to protect the virgin. Primarily because of the increased difficulty to marry and the scorn she would face. And the biological fact that men and women think different, differently on this subject. Men and women's minds operate differently. What the Lord is doing here is the Lord is preventing men from planting their seed without staying around for the harvest, if you know what I mean. Being responsible for... Their actions, he was making sure that they knew that there were consequences to our action. Or as Bruce Holbrook would say, "If you play, if you play, you pay, boy. If you play, you pay." <laughs> that was my dad's. Uh, that was my. That was King Bruce Holbrook. King Solomon's wisdom on uh, on uh, chastity. He was making sure that they knew that there were consequences. The consequences were in this situation that they had to pay the bride price. Now, we don't know exactly what the bride price was, but it was not likely, it was not very unlikely that it was. This idea that we talked about uh, in the past of selling uh, the daughter over to a husband so that they would have a better life or or even selling the daughter into slavery. But what it was more likely to be, it was um, the pr- a price that was paid to either the woman or her father to either prove that the suitor was a reliable and uh, suitor who was able to take care of his daughter or that he was going to take care of her because he was unwilling to stay around and physically be there. So he was going to take care of her in a monetary way. In any case, the law was written to protect, protect those who were considered lowly in ancient society. This law actually shows us two ideas. That we should be careful and thoughtful about our relationships pre-marriage. We should honor God in them. But also, that God doesn't believe in two wrongs making a right. The rule here isn't if you are overcome, if you seduce a virgin and you're overcome with passion, you should marry her with her father behind you with a shotgun. That's not the rule. After all, the Lord is sensible enough and He is wise enough to understand that two wrongs don't make a right. You should not compound your problems by making more problems. The rule is that something must be done to, take care to, to right this wrong. Some restitution, again we see, some restitution is put in place. The next lowly person that is discussed is the sojourner. Now I will not spend much time on this, but you need to, you need to know a few things. The sojourner here is not every immigrant ever. That is not what this word means in this text. I know it's a hot-button issue in our society, but the sojourner is someone who has permission from the ruling people of the land to live and work and settle in that land. This is not someone who, any, honestly, in any other society, anyone who uh, crossed a border illegally would have been considered an enemy and not a friend. I'm just, I'm just speaking frankly. I'm just speaking honestly. I don't think that that's how we should treat people who cross the borders Illegally here, I'm just speaking honestly about society as a whole. In the United States, this person, this sojourner, would be the equivalent to a legal immigrant. Now, no matter how much we might hope there is, there is no number given as to how many immigrants, how many sojourners we should help. There is also no moral law saying that we should not prevent sojourners from entering the land. The law here is given for us, So that we may treat the sojourner of our land with the affection of God. This doesn't mean that we treat illegal immigrants poorly because they're illegal. But this law is only concerning those who have gone through a system of honest immigration. What does it mean to help the sojourner? Well, it means understanding that they are foreign with little to no family and little to no assistance. That they will likely learn English and it will probably take them less time than it's taken you to learn your second language. That they will need jobs. That they will need friends. That they will need just generic and general human compassion, just like everyone else needs. And that we should treat them like Leviticus 19.34 says, as a native born in the land. We should not let our fear, friends, or our nationalism cause us to hate or harm our neighbors of different backgrounds, ethnicities, and skin colors. Our foreign friends need the gospel, and the astute Christian does not see an ethnic America as an invasion, but as a mission field. Friends, the world is coming to us. You don't have to get on an airplane any longer. You don't have to post pictures of you holding African babies or South American babies on Facebook or social media. You can do that in your own backyard. The astute believer, the person with the mind of Christ, doesn't look at immigration as an invasion, but as a mission field. There are two other lowly people groups mentioned. Widows and orphans. This is one that the Lord is serious about. It gets several mentions in the text of Scripture. It is known as true and undefiled religion to care for widows, to care for orphans. The system in the past for widows and orphans was not quite like it is now, though. My grandmother lost her husband, lost, we lost our grandfather 18 years ago, and she has yet to struggle a day in her life financially. But she doesn't struggle because my grandfather lived in a cash-based society that he could work really hard and save a lot of money so that she could live off of that money. She could live meagerly, but she could live off that money for the rest of her life, supposedly. In a cash-based society, this command might not mean as much to you um, for to lose a widow and or to lose a husband in that society, to become a widow would have meant losing your livelihood. To be an orphan would have meant no no help, no assistance. Being on the streets, there was no no insurance, no four hundred one k, no social security. Widows and orphans were completely dependent on the stewardship and the generosity of the church, which is something we can all learn from. Just because the urgency for care of widows and orphans is not as prevalent as it was back then, it does not take away from the urgency and the prevalence of the command itself. There was a steep penalty for not caring for the widows and orphans. And it goes back to lex talionis, right? An eye for an eye. The Lord says, if you don't take care of the widows... If you don't take care of the orphans, I will make your wives widows. I will come on you with the sword, and I will make your wives widows. And I will make your sons orphans. We must consider, friends, the lowly, the oppressed, those that are forgotten to have the heart of God. There's one last group, and that is the poor neighbor. Here the Lord is speaking against predatory lending, now, I've said this before, and I'm sorry if you have worked or work or own or whatever this field, but those cash advance places, the check cashing places, the title loan places, these are all from the pit of hell. There is nothing about this, that it, there is nothing about these places that honor God as it concerns lending and treating the poor. The Lord says, don't lend with interest to your poor neighbor and especially not with greater interest because you know of that person's desperation. As a matter of fact, the Bible here speaks of there being instances where not only the lender should not expect interest from his poor neighbor, but he should also not expect the principal. Luke 6 says, even the sinners lend expecting in return. But we should lend what? Expecting nothing in return. Friends, we should give away much more than we lend. We should be generous people if we want to be, if we want to have a mind and a heart like God's. We should also be wise stewards of what God has given us so that we don't miss moments of gospel generosity. Yes. So what do we do to help the lowly and forgotten? Men, we don't take advantage of women on any level, especially in an emotional level. Men and women, we stay pure until marriage. We should help the immigrant, offering jobs, education, helps with rides, shopping, and housing. These are things that World Relief does. If you want to volunteer with World Relief, that would be a great option. If you want to ask them personally ways that you can help them, that would be a great option. We can volunteer. We can teach ESL. We can be helpers in those classes. We can give of our time and our money. We should love and support the widow and orphan. And I will tell you this is something that Blake Bostick has excelled in. And it's something that he has changed my heart on. A heart on. Because visiting nursing homes would, is, is one of the things that I'm, you know, that's like childhood scars there. But Blake, is, Blake has found it rich in his life. And, and honestly, I've seen this in uh, my, my grandmother that I mentioned a minute ago. She's in a nursing home right now. And I've seen the help that my mother and her sisters have provided to those people whose family don't get to visit as often. Those people who don't have family around. Visiting nursing homes can help minister to and love the widow. Adopting, fostering, and giving to organizations that do. Friends, if you don't feel like, friends, if you feel physically able, and and this is not like, Oh, I'm, you know, I don't know if I could be this parent. You should consider adopting or fostering. You should. Everyone should. I've said this before. I believe everyone should. But if you don't feel like that's the stage in life you are at, you're at, then you should give to organizations that help mothers in crisis pregnancy situations. You should give to organizations that that help uh, that that support adoption and support fostering. Like we'll do later on this year when we're going to collect uh, backpacks for foster. Children, we should consider our poor neighbor by being actively involved in church plant activities, like say if your church has a canned food drive, and volunteering at homeless shelters or job placement centers, giving of our time, considering the plight of others. We can have the heart of God when we consider it the lowly a follower of Jesus. This is the second point. They're six, so get ready. I'm just kidding. They won't. The rest of them will go a little bit faster. A follower of Jesus should be spiritually discerning. He should be spiritually discerning. I'm not going to stay on verses 18 through 20 long because they say exactly what they need to say. You should not, verse 18. You should not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. A sorceress was a woman. A sorcerer was a man. Uh, and they were both faced with the same penalty. They were faced with a capital penalty. A person, this is a person who was trying to conjure up spiritual power through demonic influences. This was someone who claimed spiritual knowledge from the gods and would cast spells and do different things like that. The second one mentioned here is strange, and it seems out of place, but the reason it is here is because there was a feeling that certain animals were holy. Or they had the power of the gods in them. And that if they united yeah. these, peop- these things, that they, the powers would unite. And so, all throughout the Bible, this act is condemned. But specifically, it is being condemned here because it is pagan worship. It is pagan worship. The other is making sacrifices to any other God. These three are important because they have let the world change the line between what is acceptable and what is not. Primarily because our senses have been dulled to the fact that there is spiritual warfare. And there are really spiritual forces fighting an unseen battle, as the Bible describes. We have lost our spiritual discernment. So we have someone read our palm or tell us our future for fun not knowing that we dishonor God when we do. Or we listen to a psychic or read our horoscopes, not knowing that these things are an abomination to the Lord. We mock or ridicule Christians who have convictions. Now, don't slay me. Don't throw stones here. We mock or ridicule Christians who have convictions about Harry Potter or other borderline things because they're fun and harmless. Now, I'm honestly not saying that Harry Potter uh, isn't something that you, know, you should read. I'm not, I'm not saying that it is straight from the pits of hell here. I will say this, though. The, the Lord knows all things which by its very nature should make the Christian the most discerning person on earth because we are in Christ. I pray, friends, that we do not dishonor God by letting those spiritual forces creep into our lives or even into our church worship or personal worship. We should remember the lowly. We should be discerning. A follower of Jesus should be discerning. A follower of Jesus should trust in and give faithfully to the Lord. A follower of Jesus should trust in and give faithfully to the Lord. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And then he goes on to talking about giving of your firstborn, giving of your first fruits. It is natural, friends, for Republicans and Democrats to dislike and ridicule the other leaders of the other party. This is becoming more and more prevalent. And really, our current president has a little to do with that. But both parties have been perfecting this for a long time. This is not something that was new to Donald Trump. He's just more brazen about it. The Lord gives, the Lord doesn't give this option to Christians, though. The Lord relates our treatment of our leaders directly to our trust in His sovereignty. Let me me repeat that for you. The Lord relates our trust and treatment of our leaders directly to our trust in His sovereignty. Christians do not have the luxury of hating the opposite party leaders but we would honor those but we should honor those rulers that have been put in place and who have they been put in place by they've been put in place by God Romans 13 says that we bring judgment on ourselves when we rebel against authority in a sense we're breaking the fifth command this doesn't mean that we will always disagree this doesn't mean that we can't verbalize Our disagreement. But it does mean that we will take the sovereignty of God into account and how He has placed the rulers and authority into account as we think about how we treat and honor earthly authority. We trust in the sovereignty of God with our rulers, but also we do this with our own lives. We don't hold anything back from the Lord. We consecrate our lives personally. We give up our children to the Lord to honor Him. We give up the first fruits of our wealth to honor the Lord. We take care and, and, and are concerned with what goes in our bodies. We are holy unto the Lord so we shouldn't eat that which should be given to the dogs. We should consecrate our bodies. Everything from world leaders to our household, belongs to the Lord. And we should do well to learn quickly to live that way. Friends, I am convinced of this fact, that the families who live in the most peace have these things right in their lives and in the lives of their children. They live in peace because they know the leaders and the future belongs to the Lord. They live in peace because they know that their finances belong to the Lord. They live in peace because they know their children and their children's future belongs to the Lord. The more that we understand that we are not our own, the more peace we have in our lives. The less of this world we try to hold on to. The less of this world we try to keep. A follower of Jesus should trust in the Lord and give faithfully of the very best of what he has to the Lord. A follower of Jesus should deal justly and compassionately in worldly affairs. I think, um, if you're back there, I think that you might need to look at the outline because I believe I edited one and then forgot to tell Blake about it. So, there you go. There's a lot to chew on in this text, and I'm, I'm not going go to go into detail of every single thing. But a follower of Jesus should d- j- deal wor- justly excuse me, and compassionately in worldly affairs. Affairs. But here are some of the things here that the Lord condemns. The Lord condemns a malicious and false gossip, which is dangerous for any society. But imagine the effect it has on the local church. We are to deal justly. The next person is a person who joins hands with a malicious witness. It's not that the Lord just condemns you being a malicious witness. You can't be in the crowd of rebel rousers. You can't be in the crowd of people who are, are just passively condemning, passively bearing false witness. Friends, can I ask you something to do something for me, Please. Will you please use discernment before you try to take on a cause that you see on the internet? Can you use discernment before you hitch your wagon to what seems at face value injustice? Before you judge or condemn or before you support? Our society not only expects an answer from Christians, but it requires Christians to give a response immediately. And I just say personally that I don't hold to that. It is not my prerogative to answer immediately every single issue that I see on the internet. It is not my prerogative to ever answer some of the issues that I see on the internet. You are not being unjust if you withhold how you feel about certain issues on the internet even if they are to be found out later to be socially um, immoral or unjust. Because what i found is in my patience at times that things are not always what they seem. Often we need to stop, even for weeks at a time, before we retweet, before we comment, or before we condemn. I think it's very important to point out sex, sex offenders and different things like that. But I, I cringe a little bit when everybody's sharing some dude's picture on Facebook that not many people can verify. Now, I know that in instances in DeSoto County, there have been some verification of certain pictures, but I cringe when pictures are posted or stories are posted and they've got thousands of likes and thousands of comments and hundreds of shares and there's no one, there's no original source that can verify the truth of the story. Friends, Christianity, the heart of God, is not joining the mob, but trying to disperse the mob. Do not bear false witness in a lawsuit. This is huge not only because it discredits real victims, but it also perverts the views of those seeking actual justice. Some things else that are interesting here. Don't favor the poor in a lawsuit. Just because someone is poor doesn't mean you should give them the benefit of the doubt. Often, I mean, you may think, well, that's common sense, but that's not. That is not what happens in our society. The rich have been, those well-off or rich have been characterized as evil just for having money. And that's just not true. It's not having money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not having things that makes it impossible to uh, to enter into eternity. It's having things that makes it difficult to enter into eternity. Don't take a bribe. Don't kill the innocent. Don't bring false charges. All of these things are vastly important to maintaining godly integrity. All of these things are truths that probably we regularly follow. And then we have sort of this pesky one at the end again. The Lord requires us not only to love our enemies, but to help them. To go out of our way to right wrongs in their lives. Listen, even if we weren't the cause of them, to bring back the loose ox to lighten the load of the overburdened donkey all of this we see we have seen as god's means of telling us that we must love those that ha- that we have little to no stock in it's very important it's easy to love those who can do something for you it's easy to love those who can give you something or have something to offer But the principles and rules, rules of God, the ordinance of God, tell us that we should love those who have nothing to offer us. Those that have lost our love, even, and our trust. And in some cases, those we don't care for at all. Like a comic book hero, we should be unbiased in the way that we seek justice for all. Seeking what is right more than what is actually culturally pushed. Again, loving those who we don't feel deserve it or those even that are unloving to us. Being little image bearers of God and as little image bearers spreading around small amounts of justice in our field, our circle, our sphere of influence. We should seek right, friends, without regard for worldly approval. That we would seek right above, above retribution and revenge. That we would seek right above financial gain. That we would be people known by how justly we treat others. I think there was only five total, and there's probably an extra one up there. I'm sorry. But a follower of Jesus, this is the last one, should take Sabbath rest in him. There are too many specifics to touch on in in this part. Too many specifics to touch on this text. But I do want to tell you from this text, the Lord wants us to rest. He wants us to have vacation, and he wants us to rest from our labor. He wants us to have time to refuel and energize. He is so sure about this that he created natural, weekly, monthly and yearly times of rest in the Jewish calendar. Through the Sabbaths and the feast and the other, feast and the other events, they were designed to give people rest within their natural calendar. Friends, it's not good for us to work our life away. We must have designed rest, even if we don't travel. I think it's good to take vacation. If we work jobs, we should work a job that gives us a regular day off. Or we should adjust our expectations for our means or what we need in order to be able to work a job that gives us this time off. There is an important caveat to this rest, though. The rest that the Lord designed is never fruitless. The rest is always focused around fellowship with the Lord. These feasts and these Sabbaths were designed so that God's people would stop and remember the goodness of the Lord. This is why it's necessary that your Sabbaths and times of rest are designed in the same way. I must tell you, at times I felt miserably in this. When we go on vacation, it's like everything stops. It's like all of the order and structure that I had in my life, like daily reading, consistent and fervent prayer, um, shepherding my children in the Lord. It's like, oh, you want to throw that off the balcony? That's fine. We're we're on vacation. You know, you don't normal you don't normally you know spit at the waitress. No, I'm just kidding. It's never that bad yet. But they're kind of young, so who knows. I sort of cut I sort of cut myself off from the things that I more naturally do. My prayer life slacks, scriptural devotion slacks, my intentional spiritual leading of my family even slacks at times. But this doesn't appear what God wants. It appear to be what God wants. He wants us to rest in him, but the rest in him has a focus less on the rest and more on him. Therefore, it's difficult to take a Sabbath rest on Sunday and avoid the fellowship of believers. You know what I mean? It's difficult to take a Sabbath rest on Sunday and avoid church gathering. Because when we do that, we pull ourselves away from the focus of the Lord. The intention of the Sabbath is not just rest, but remembrance. The intention of the feast was not just rest, but remembrance. They look back at the harvest. They look back at the harvest and they say, Look at what the Lord has done for us. He is faithful. He is good. He has never left us. He will not forsake us. The intention, friends, of the Sabbath today is rest. But it is also focus on what the Lord has done for us. We think about how we were orphans. We were widows. We were strangers. We were foreigners. We were sojourners. Far off. Unable in our own power, in our might to save ourselves. Unable to redeem ourselves from the depth of our depravity. But God, in His great love, and at the right time, sent Jesus. And through His power and through the work that the Lord did, that God did before the foundation of the world, we are saved. We are redeemed. And through the Holy Spirit, we are sealed until the day that He returns. And on Sundays, and when we open our Bible, and when we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and when we pray, and when we memorize Scripture, what we're doing is we're not saying, this is good for me in order to, honor, to obey God. We're saying, this is good for me to honor God because I'm remembering the work that He has done in my life. I am learning the heart of God. I am learning who He is. I think all of these things boil down to sort of two questions. Do we have, or are we growing in the heart of God? And does the heart that we have allow us to see others the way that Christ sees them? Because when we do, we will have more empathy. When we do, we'll be more kind to our neighbors, even our foreign neighbors. When we do, we'll be more generous. When we do, we'll be more loving, more willing to forgive, more willing to show mercy and grace. Friends, I know that it is not within us, and it is fearful, it is scary at times that, Muslim people are coming to this country and, you know, they're known for terrorism and different... I'm not trying to belittle that. But those who trust their future in the Lord, what can man do to you? What can man do to you? What power does he have over you? He can take your life, but to live is Christ and to die is gain. that we would have the heart of God and that we would treat people and see people the way Christ sees them. Lord, you're so good. (laughs) And even while we were still sinners, Lord, you died for us. While we were still sinners, you gave your life as a living sacrifice. Lord, you did not just save us and you put us to the side, Lord, but you... You saved us and you put us on the solid ground. You gave us a footing so firm that we could follow you, that we could obey you, that we could know your heart, that we could live more like you. Lord, that vintage church would be characterized as a church that shows Jesus to the world in generosity, in kindness, in empathy, in compassion, in love. Because above all, love binds all of these things together. You are so good. Lord, will we understand your goodness and celebrate it and spread it to the world? And will we live holy lives? It's in the name of Jesus we pray and for his sake. Amen.